at our graduation, we were bound by enormous affection, by our shared experience of a time that could never come again, and of course, by the knowledge that we held certain photographic evidence that would be exceptionally valuable if any of us ran for Prime Minister. So today, I wish you nothing better than similar friendships. And tomorrow, I hope that even if you remember not a single word of mine, you remember those of Seneca, another of those old Romans I met when I fled down the classics corridor in retreat from, from career ladders in search of ancient wisdom. As is a tale, so is life. Not how long it is, but how good it is, is what matters. I wish you all very good lives. Thank you very much. Hello there, I'm Justin, and welcome to today's episode of The Pickup Line. On today's episode, we dive back into Walter Ong's orality and literacy with a section in this book that is especially relevant to me because it has a lot to do with my career and my job as a writing teacher at a university. So it should be an interesting discussion today. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Let's dive right into it. I was walking down the street when I thought I heard this voice say same street together on the very same day. I said, hey, senorita, that's astute, I said. Why don't we get together and call ourselves an institute? You don't feel you could love me, but I feel you could love me, but I feel you You don't feel you could love me, but I feel you could. So today we're on page uh, 107 in Walter Ong's Orality and Literacy, and we're in a section uh, subheaded Interactions, Rhetoric and the Places. Um, and this section is going to be especially an interesting discussion for me because it has a lot to do with tracing the history of the way that uh, rhetoric first developed in oral cultures and then the way rhetoric as a concept found its way into uh, much more contemporary academic uh, settings, which is where I find myself uh, right now in 2020. I am a, a full-time lecturer in the Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies department at uh, UNC Charlotte. And so um, rhetoric is a really important word in my career, in my title, in my department, in everything that I do. And so it's really interesting to hear uh, some of Ong's ideas about rhetoric here and some of his uh, historical tracings, thinking about, you know, the way that this concept has has wound up in, in my in my own personal life. So uh, on page 107, Ong begins this section by saying, two special major developments in the West derive from and affect the interaction of writing and orality. These are academic rhetoric and learned Latin. Uh, so for this, for this discussion here, we're going to focus on the, um, the academic rhetoric part um, of, of Ang's discussion here. Um, so Ang begins here uh, by saying, in his volume three of the Oxford History of English Literature, C.S. Lewis observed that rhetoric is the greatest barrier between us and our ancestors. Lewis honors the magnitude of the subject by refusing to treat it, despite its overwhelming relevance for the culture of all ages, at least up to the age of Romanticism. The study of rhetoric dominant in all Western cultures until that time had begun as the core of ancient Greek education and culture. 
In ancient Greece, the study of philosophy, represented by Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, for all its subsequent fecundity, was a relatively minor element in the total Greek culture, never competitive with rhetoric either in the number of its practitioners or in its immediate social effects, as Socrates' unhappy fate suggests. Rhetoric was at root the art of public speaking or oral address for persuasion, forensic and deliberative rhetoric, or exposition, uh, epidiactic rhetoric. The Greek word rhetor is from the same root as the Latin orator and means a public speaker. In the perspectives worked out by Havelock in 1963, it would appear obvious that in a very deep sense, the rhetorical tradition represented the old oral world and the philosophical tradition, the new chirographic structures of thought. So the idea here is like rhetoric, uh, this idea of traditional rhetoric uh, is, is a thing that existed like this idea of someone speaking, an, or, an orator speaking out loud to an audience, is deeply rooted in an old oral cultural world where they did not have a writing structure. And then f philosophy, um, thinking about thinking, thinking about being, uh, you know, the sort of sort of these core philosophical ideas, those are more uh, situated in a, in a chirographic or a, a culture that uh, deals with writing. Like Plato, uh, Anka continues here, like Plato, C.S. Lewis was in effect unwittingly turning his back on the old oral world. Over the centuries, until the age of Romanticism, when the thrust of rhetoric was uh, diverted definitively, if not totally, from oral performance to writing, explicit or even implicit commitment to the formal study and formal practice of rhetoric is an index of the amount of residual primary orality in a given culture. So this is really interesting, like kind of making this connection between the practice of rhetoric and how much a culture is uh, rooted in orality and how oral a culture is and how, how willing a culture is to connect with those oral spaces, those oral traditions that brought them together. And I, I have an interesting thought about this and, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts. What, when I'm reading this section, it really is making me think about uh, what orality means in 2020 with the rise of social media technology. Um, we've, I think I would argue that we have become a much more orally based culture, um, specifically in the sense that if, if you want to kind of connect these two things, in a way, you know, we've become a very video-esque culture. We are into the visual image, but those visual images typically are enhanced when the sound is there as well. Um, you know, you open a video on YouTube and there's sound. You open a video on Instagram, on Snapchat, on TikTok, and the sound and the moving images is what makes those two things work, especially on a platform like TikTok, where you've got so much, uh, you know, funny videos of videos that have gone viral, things like this. Um, it's, it's typically why that happens is because there's a funny or relevant connection between the sound and the moving images. Um, so it's an interesting thing to think about this idea that our culture now maybe is swinging back towards orality through the technology that we are using. Um, you know, are we becoming more about this idea of the rhetor, of the speaker standing up performing before an audience? So much of our digital technology culture is a performance. Um, and in a way, anyone, anyone, everyone that uses social media is a rhetor. Every single person, every time you create a profile, an account, a post, a message on any social media platform, the whole crux of it, the whole idea is that it's social, is that you're creating that thing for an audience, perceived or otherwise. Um, and, and the idea, the hope, the 
the notion is that someone else is going to see your performance. Um, so I think social media has brought us back to our reality in a, in a major way. Ung continues by saying, Homeric and the pre-Homeric Greeks, like oral peoples generally, practiced public speaking with great skill long before their skills were reduced to an art, that is, to a body of sequentially organized scientific principles which explained and abetted what verbal persuasion consisted in. Such an art is presented in Aristotle's rhetoric, uh, Art of Rhetoric, Techne Rhetorique. Oral cultures, as, seen, as has been seen, can have no arts of this scientifically organized sort. No one could or can simply recite extempore a treaty such as Aristotle's Art of Rhetoric, as someone in an oral culture would have to do if this sort of understanding were to be implemented. Lengthy oral productions follow more agglomerative, less analytic patterns. The art of rhetoric, though concerned with oral speech, was, like other arts, the product of writing. Um, so essentially this idea of art as a scientific pursuit, or excuse me, rhetoric as, as art. Rhetoric as sort of a chirographically centered, scientifically organized thing that you could study did not exist in oral cultures. That was something that came about when we were able to write things down. Persons from a high technology culture who, became, who become aware of the vast literature of the past dealing with rhetoric from classical antiquity through the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and on into the Age of Enlightenment, uh, of the universal and obsessive interest in the subject through the ages and the amount of time spent studying it, of its vast and intricate terminology for classifying hundreds of figures of speech in Greek and Latin, are likely to react with, what a waste of time. But for its first discoverers or inventors, the sophists of 5th century Greece, rhetoric was a marvelous thing. It provided a rationale for what was dearest to their hearts, effective and often showy oral performance, something which had been a distinctively human part of human existence for ages, but which, before writing, could never have been so reflectively prepared for or accounted for. So again, I think this speaks to my point that I made earlier, uh, this idea of showy oral performance. That's what a lot of social media content is. It is a showy oral performance. And that, that desire to perform is a deeply human trait and something that I think uh, psychologically social media taps into in a major, major way. Um, it provides us, it provides every single person with their own personal stage and their own audience to which they can perform at the click of a button uh, any way they want to. And whatever kind of performance they want to create, whatever kind of rhetoric they want to produce, um, they are, that's what social media does. It taps into our need for showy oral performance, I think. Ung continues by saying, Rhetoric retained much of the old oral feeling for thought and expression as basically agnostic and formulaic. This shows clearly in rhetorical teaching about the places. So this is kind of where my job starts to intersect here a little bit. With its agnostic heritage, rhetorical teaching assumed that the aim of more or less all discourse was to prove or disprove a point against some opposition. Developing a subject was thought of as a process of invention, that is, of finding in store in finding in the store of arguments that others had always exploited those arguments which were applicable to your case. These arguments were considered to be lodged or seated in the places uh, from, the, from the Greek uh, word uh, topoi or loci, loci in Latin, and were often called the loci communis or common places when they were thought of as providing arguments common to any and all subject matter. So that's kind of where we get this um, commonplace uh, term when we say when we use the word commonplace 
what we're, we're referring to is sort of this like um, storehouse of ideas or arguments or things that have been kind of created uh, that we can draw upon and tap into. Uh, from at least the time of Quintilian, loci communists were taken in two different senses. First, it referred to the seats of arguments considered as abstract headings in today's parlance, such as definition, cause, effect, opposites, likeness, and so on. The assortment varied in length from one author to another. Wanting to develop a proof, we should say simply to develop a line of thought on any subject, such as loyalty, evil, the guilt of an accused criminal, friendship, war, or whatever, one could always find something to say by defining looking to causes, effects, opposites, and all the rest. These headings can be styled the analytic commonplaces. And this is the kind of stuff that we teach writing students all the time in, in, in secondary education, right? We, 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 we give them this, this, this rubric of, of things to tap into. Here are the five ways you can make an argument, right? It's this. These are the commonplaces, right? These are the commonplaces. That's what we're drawing upon in these academic traditions. Uh, secondly, Loci communists or commonplaces refer to collections of sayings, the effect formulas on various topics such as loyalty, decadence, friendship, or whatever that could be worked into one's own speech making or writing. In this sense, the loci communists can be styled cumulative commonplaces. Both the analytic and the cumulative commonplaces, it is clear, kept alive the old oral feeling for thought and expression essentially made up of form formulaic or otherwise fixed materials inherited from the past. To say this is not to say this is not to explicate the whole of the complex doctrine, which itself was integral to the massive art of rhetoric. Ung continues and says that rhetoric, of course, is essentially antithetical, for the orator speaks in the face of at least implied adversaries. Oratory has deep agnostic roots. The development of the vast rhetorical tradition was distinctive of the West and was related, whether as cause or effect or both, to the tendency among the Greeks and their cultural epigoni to maximize oppositions in the mental as in the experimental world. Or, excuse me, in the mental as in the extramental world. This by contrast with Indians and Chinese who programmatically minimized them. From Greek antiquity on, the dominance of rhetoric in the academic background produced throughout the literate world an impression, real if often vague, that oratory was the paradigm of all verbal expression and kept the agnostic pitch of discourse exceedingly high by present day standards. Poetry itself was often assimilated to epideictic oratory and was considered to be concerned basically with praise or blame as much oral and even written poetry is even today. Into the 19th century, most literary style throughout the West was formed by academic rhetoric in one way or another, with one notable exception, the literary style of women authors, of female authors. Of the female authors who became published writers, as many did from the 1600s on, almost none had any such training. In medieval times and after, the education of girls was often intensive and produced effective managers of households of sometimes 50 to 80 persons, which were often sizable businesses. But this education was not acquired in an academic institution, which taught rhetoric and all other subjects in Latin. When they began to enter schools in some numbers during the 17th century, girls entered not the mainline Latin schools, but the newer vernacular schools. These were practically 
oriented for commerce and domestic affairs, whereas the older schools with Latin-based instruction were for those aspiring to be clergy, lawyers, physicians, diplomats, and other public servants. Women writers were no doubt influenced by works that they had read emanating from the Latin-based academic rhetorical tradition, but they themselves normally expressed themselves in a different, far less oratorical voice, which had a great deal to do with the rise of the novel. So I never knew that. That's really, that's really amazing. Um, excluding women from traditional academic institutions, not amazing. But the fact that women authors were able to create an entirely new and distinctive voice and genre from that exclusion is, is amazing. Um, so that's a really cool. I'd love to learn more about that. I was kind of disappointed that the chapter uh, kind of trails off there and doesn't go into too much of that history. I would have liked a lot more about that. But I digress. So uh, Ong also cites this idea of learned Latin, um, learning Latin through a chirographically situated structure, which we're going to kind of gloss over here a little bit and, and get to the end of this section. So I think the end of this section is really important. Um, Tenaciousness of orality is the title of this little part. And Ong writes, as the paradoxical relationships of orality and literacy and rhetoric and learned Latin suggest, the transition from orality to literacy was slow. The Middle Ages used texts far more than ancient Greece and Rome. Teachers lectured on texts in the universities and yet never tested knowledge or intellectual prowess by writing, but always by oral dispute. A practice continued in diminishing ways into the 19th century and today still surviving vestigially in the defense of the doctoral dissertation in the fewer and fewer places where this is practiced. The Renaissance humanism invented modern textual scholarship and presided over the development of letterpress printing. It also harked back to an antiquity and thereby gave new life to orality. English style in the Tudor period, and even much later, carried heavy oral residue in its use of epithets, balance, antithesis, formulary structures, and commonplace materials, and so with Western European literary styles generally. In Western classical antiquity, it was taken for granted that a written text of any worth was meant to be and deserved to be read aloud, and the practice of reading texts aloud continued quite commonly with many variations through the 19th century. This practice strongly influenced literary style from antiquity until rather recent times. Still yearning for the old orality, the 19th century developed elocution contests, which tried to repistinate printed text using careful artistry to memorize the text verbatim and recite them so that they would sound like extempore oral productions. Dickens read selections from his novels on the orator's platform. The famous McGuffey's Readers, published in the United States in some 120 million copies between 1836 and 1920, were designed as remedial readers to improve not the reading for comprehension, which we idolize today, but oral declamatory reading. The McGuffey's specialized in passages from sound conscious literature concerned with great heroes. They provided endless oral pronunciation and breathing drills. I find this so interesting. I find it so interesting to think about what, what is valued and what and how those value systems change. And again, I come back to technologies like live Twitch streams and Snapchat videos and Instagram Live, where we again are seeing these sort of like, I wouldn't call them an elocution contest, but we're seeing folks create orality in a way that is performative, yet, yet also uh, intentional. Um, there is such a a specific way to say things, uh, for example, 
when you're creating a YouTube video. Just go and watch any how to do something YouTube video and there's a very distinctive um, elocution to the way that YouTubers create that content. Um, there's a psychology to it. There is a performance to it. Uh, there is an absolute rhetoric to that. And I think, these, again, these social media platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Twitch, that provide live video and audio content to its users are, are bolstering our culture's sense of orality and are kind of forcing us or encouraging us to practice those oral skills. And I find that to be fascinating. Rhetoric itself, Ang continues, gradually but inevitably migrated from the oral to the chirographic world. From classical antiquity, the verbal skills learned in rhetoric were put to use, not only in oratory, but also in writing. By the 16th century, rhetoric textbooks were commonly omitting from the traditional five parts of rhetoric, which are invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery, the fourth part, memory, which was not applicable to writing. They were also minimizing the last part, delivery. By and large, they made these changes with spacious explanations or no explanation at all. Today, when curricula list rhetoric as a subject, it usually means simply the study of how to write effectively. But no one ever consciously launched a program to give this new direction to rhetoric. Well, we did. We just did that. The art simply followed the drift of consciousness away from an oral to a writing economy. The drift was completed before it was noticed that anything was happening. Once it was completed, rhetoric was no longer the all-pervasive subject it had once been. Education could no longer be described as fundamentally rhetorical as it could be in past ages. The three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, representing an essentially non-rhetorical, bookish, commercial, and domestic education gradually took over from the traditional, orally grounded, heroic, agnostic education that had generally prepared young men in the past for teaching in professional, ecclesiastical, or political public service. In the process, as rhetoric and Latin went out, women entered more and more into academia, which also became more and more commercially oriented. So we're starting to see this shift in the history that Ong is describing. And <clears throat> this is why this passage is so important to me as, as my job, as my profession, as my career, is because I am of the mind that we, in a sense, need to move away from this drift that has occurred. You know, too much of our educational paradigms in America have, have found themselves, you know, in this place where we need to teach students skills. We need to teach them the skills they're going to need to do well in the jobs they want to perform. And that's important. I mean, that's good. We want our students to get jobs. But if you're teaching in a department like I, we just created together, the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies, there has to be an understanding that rhetoric and writing are more than just a skill set that can be learned. Writing and rhetoric are ongoing, lifelong habits of mind. Um, there is no, you know, relying on something like the pot, the five paragraph essay is a trap. Um, you, you cannot rely on a commonplace like the five paragraph essay to become a better writer. It's just not going to work that way. Instead, you have to kind of turn around what Ong just described here as this sort of um, shift away from a fundamentally rhetorical educational system. You have to turn that back around. All, all the things that we do are rhetorical. 
everything is rhetorical. Everything that we do is rhetoric. And that's what I teach my students, you know, from the Instagram post that you've done to the essay that you write for your psychology class to the annotated bibliography that you do in your history class. Everything is rhetorical. And one step beyond that, everything is situational. Writing is a socially, situationally constructed paradigm that exists in a negotiated space between two or more, like between people in a social setting. Um, it's not a exclusively uh, hidden practice that you do in your journal by yourself, as we talked about a little bit in a few episodes back from this book. But instead, it is something that is public facing. It is social. It is rely. It relies on others to become effective. Um, you can't do it by yourself. And, and this is what we try to imbue in, in all of our writing students, this idea of rhetoric and this idea of how do we create texts and compositions and all sorts of different multimodal productions and, and essays and, and all sorts of things. Uh, how do we do this in a way that, that embraces that, that techne rhetoric, that art of, of rhetoric, uh, and, and an understanding that all the texts that we create are a part of that rhetorical situation? So this whole chapter felt really important to me. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of uh, underscored the things that I already believed about how writing should be taught and how we can get better at it. Even that phrase feels a little oxymoronic, like how writing should be taught. Um, can you even teach it? I, I don't I don't even like to think of it that way. Um, I don't teach writing. I encourage colleagues to become better practitioners of writing. Um, that's that's kind of what I'm all about. Uh, so I just I, it was good to read this. It really, it really helps kind of uh, ground my own pedagogy a little bit, my own philosophy about the teaching of writing. And it was a really interesting chapter uh, nonetheless. And so that, that brings us to the end of part four of orality and literacy. So we've come a long way. We've gotten through about 114 pages of this book, um, which is almost exactly halfway. So we're right in the middle, which is awesome. Um, and next up is chapter five, part five, print, space, and closure, which sounds really exciting. So uh, thank you all for, for coming with me on this ride through orality and literacy. I really, really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any comments or questions or thoughts or feelings about any of this, uh, what are your ideas about rhetoric? Do you think that everything is rhetorical? Do you find yourself uh, thinking about this idea of uh, performance and audience in the things that you do in your daily life? Let me know. Leave a message. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of The Pickup Line. I will see you next time.